0: So let's turn to John chapter 1 for our Bible reading. We've been looking at John's prologue for four Sunday mornings. You could read it and read it and read it, and it is one of these passages of depth and richness that uh, can sustain uh, many, many readings. And the more that you read John's gospel as a whole, the more you hear the themes and ideas of his prologue beginning to resurface again through the gospel so let's turn to john chapter 1 and then if you have a finger in revelation chapter 1 as well we'll read a few verses there uh, also so john chapter 1 and we're going to read just verses 14 to 18 the word became flesh And made his dwelling among us we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the father full of grace and truth John testifies concerning him that is John the Baptist testifies concerning him he cries out saying this was he of whom I said He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, Who is at the Father's side has made him known. And then, if you turn over to Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, think of that phrase that John used in in the Gospel we have seen his glory. And then, the same man who wrote the Gospel wrote these words Revelation. 1 verse 12. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with golden sash round his chest, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance when i saw him i fell at his feet as though dead then he placed his right hand on me and said do not be afraid i am the first and the last i am the living one i was dead and behold i am alive forever and ever and i hold the keys of death and hell let's pray for a moment dear lord jesus be our teacher we pray speak in our midst through these words inspired by your spirit written by your apostle handed down and translated and now with bibles open on our knees and in your presence we ask you be our teacher lead us by what is true change us not just to be like you lord But one day to see you for your name's sake amen well we have this fourth opportunity to reflect on these words of john in his prologue and they are as soon as you read them again they're words which evoke a depth of meaning we've looked at how jesus christ The eternal Word of God was with God the Father way back in the beginning and that everything that we see everything that has ever been created was created by him we've seen that Christ this eternal being this eternal Son of God came into this dark world and this week friends who could doubt (laughs) the reality of the world's darkness it's um palpable as headlines come isn't it but christ comes as the light of this world not a light but the light nothing else no one else can shine into and penetrate the darkness of this world in the way that jesus christ does and then we looked last week at how almost unbelievably those to whom he came the promised one to the children of god who didn't receive him and yet john says To all who will receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. So suddenly the, the gates of heaven are opened wide from the people of Israel to the whole world, to all who receive him. And then just at the end here, John comes to this idea of the glory of God being revealed in Jesus Christ, as if that wasn't enough so far. But we have this idea of glory. The Word, this person, became flesh. And it takes all the wonderful carols, doesn't it, to kind of sum up the the theology, the miracle of what is happening here. Lines like, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see." That says it so brilliantly. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling right among us, God's presence in the midst of humanity, down in the dirt and the hay of that stable floor. Almighty God, in all His infinite glory, there, as one of us, And John then says this, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. Now, because we're so used to applying the Bibles to our own lives and um, thinking about what the Bible means to us, our tendency is to read, we have seen his glory, and to think, oh, yes, we've seen his glory. We, We have understood that Jesus came into the world. That's not what John meant at all. That phrase, we have seen his glory, John is saying, we disciples have seen the glory of God in Jesus. I am writing this for you who did not see him, because he's now dead and risen and ascended into heaven. So now I'm writing all this down because you can't see him. But we saw him, he is saying, We have seen his glory. So, here, right at the beginning of my gospel, before you read any further, please recognize that what I write to you comes from somebody who was there looking at Jesus and seeing the events unfold before my very eyes. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only God, the Word, the begotten One, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw Him. So, as you read on, pay attention to what I'm saying because you're reading the words of somebody who was there at His side. Now, I think John is saying that in a general sense and in a particular sense. We have seen his glory. I think he means everything that Jesus did in a general sense. We saw the glory of God displayed in his life and ministry and miracles. And John, as you may know, deliberately selects seven of the miracles of Jesus in his gospel, to make these seven stand out as incredible signposts to who he really is. And the first of them uh, you may know and remember was when Jesus arrived at a wedding ceremony in Cana, and uh, they ran out of wine, and they got Jesus, with the help of his mother, to come and rescue this embarrassing situation. It's the very next chapter in John. It's where John goes first after his introduction. And John tells us what happened, and these, at the end of the wedding, when there was no wine left, these gallons and gallons of the finest wine was brought in, and the ceremony was saved. And uh, the master of the ceremony is... Uh, perplexed. And look at what, if if you look to chapter 2, look at what John says in verse 11. This is the first of his miraculous signs. Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. That was the beginning. This unbelievable miraculous provision of the finest wine wrapped up with the idea of bride and groom rejoicing on their wedding day, and John will come back to that idea. Loads more in his writing, but he is saying there is something in this generous, lavish, wonderful provision that speaks of the glory of Almighty God, the richness, the fullness Gallons and gallons of wine, more than anybody could imagine ever having at a wedding, and better quality than anybody had ever tasted. That speaks of the glory of God, the glory that when the Word became flesh, the glory that John and the others saw and in that instance, tasted. Now, I use this example of glory because I think we tend to think of the glory of God as a kind of shimmering light that kind of dances around heaven. And when we think of something being full of God's glory, we have these kind of slightly intangible ideas of God's glory being something that's shiny and bright, but not really much to do with us the very first instance of god's glory being revealed that john uses is gallons of the finest wine being provided for a poor couple on their wedding day in the village of cana that is not intangible it is tangible it is to be enjoyed it is to be received. It is a, in its sheer volume and quality. It is, it is substantial. The bride's father could have walked 100 miles and spent his last penny and never had such a fine wedding feast. And what I want us to see today is that this idea of God's glory being revealed is that It is substantial beauty and real, tangible gifts of His goodness that are revealed. We say, don't we, when a Christian dies and goes to be with the Lord, we say they've gone to glory. They have gone to the substantial place, is how we should think. They have gone to the real place lasting glorious world where there is no sorrow or brokenness they have gone to the world which is more solid than this one not less they're not disappeared into a shimmering cloud of effervescent gold they've gone to sit and to walk and to work and to live and to breathe with Christ and all the redeemed in a real world of substantial beauty. And our thinking, I often imagine, is the wrong way around here. We think of this world as the real world and the next world as the kind of, I don't know, less tangible, less real world. It's the other way around. Glory is weighty it's substance, it's beautiful, and it's good. Two little applications here. Why do Christians have a tendency to have feasting as part of Christmas, for example? Why do we wheel out the best of what we have and enjoy our biggest or grandest or the meal with, you know, 23 items on the plate instead of just the normal three. Why do we do that? Well, probably nobody knows why they do it other than their mother told them to, but enjoy it because it speaks of substance. It's good to sit and eat and rejoice and receive like the people at that wedding. God... Gives us tokens in this world of his goodness to remind us that in the next world the reality of his goodness will be what we enjoy. There are so many tokens of God's glory in this world to enjoy, but they are in this world only tokens. Food and wine at the wedding in Cana, but music at Christmas. Listen to what uh, Martin Luther says about music. I, Dr. Martin Luther, I'm channeling my inner Matt Baines here, wish all lovers of the unshackled art of music grace and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ I truly desire says Luther that all Christians would love and regard as worthy the lovely gift of music which is a precious worthy and costly treasure given to mankind by God the riches of music are so excellent and so precious that words fail me whenever I attempt to discuss and describe them. In summary, here's a statement. See if you agree with him. Next to the Word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. It controls our thoughts, minds, hearts, and spirits. Our dear fathers and prophets did not desire without reason that music be always used in the churches. Hence, we have so many songs and psalms. This precious gift has been given to man alone that he might thereby remind himself that God has created man for the express purpose of praising and extolling God. However, when man's natural music ability is whetted and polished, to the extent that it becomes an art then do we note with great surprise the great and perfect wisdom of god and music which is after all his product and his gift as christians we marvel when we hear music voices singing a simple melody or in harmony music reminds us of a heavenly dance where all meet in a spirit of unity. A person who gives this some thought, this is very Luther, and yet does not regard music as a marvelous creation of God Himself must be a clodhopper indeed and does not deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs. Now, Who knows if luther's right but if luther if that is right and i i think there's loads in that if music is just one tangible token of the glory of god in this world how much more in the next world one minister now A Way to That World used to say, when we're sitting on golden streets drinking real coffee, listening to the best jazz musicians discussing whatever it was, substance without any of the brokenness, the glory of God. We have yet to see it, but John says, we saw his glory every moment of Jesus' life revealing more and more and more of the coming beauty of a world that jesus was redeeming his people to live in and the specific sense that's the general sense in which he means we saw his glory the specific sense do you remember when the three disciples closest to jesus went up a mountain not all 12 of them just three of them Do you know who those three are? Peter, James, and John. Three closest. And they went up a mountain. And at the top of the mountain, Jesus suddenly shone with brilliant, dazzling, pure, white light. And I think John, as one of those three, is saying here in his prologue, We actually saw for a moment on the Mount of Transfiguration the glory of God Himself shine from the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that. We beheld His glory for a moment. And if that is just a taste of what is yet to be, how wonderful! Please read on, he's saying, I saw it, the glory of God. So much for John's words here as the gospel writer, but did you notice in Revelation that John saw the glory of Christ in another sense? John saw the glory of Christ in what was undoubtedly a vision, the book of Revelation, mysterious and full of Pictures and imagery and word art, if you like, uh, is both a vision of Jesus Christ that was given to John and a letter to the churches and a prophecy of what is yet to happen. So, Revelation, whenever you turn there, think it's a letter, it's a vision, it's a prophecy. And Revelation chapter 1, we just get this little picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration for a moment. But now in his God-given vision, he sees in all his resplendent, ascended beauty. And he describes what he sees. And he pens these words And at the very climax of what he describes, after hair and head and feet like bronze and blazing fire, at the very climax of it all was his mouth and his speech like a double-edged sword. This glorious Jesus is speaking, cutting into the lives of men and women disturbing them and saying, listen, listen to my voice. And then he says his face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. So it's not wrong to have this idea of glory being associated with effervescent light and glorious golden beauty. That's a biblical image, but do you see it's the speech of the Lord Jesus Christ which is bringing his glory to bear in the world today. The glory of God, substantial, witnessed by John and described in this vision with his speech. We cannot go to the manger and look at the baby there. We cannot go to the transfiguration mountain. Well, you can, but you won't see much at the top. If you go to a wedding in Cana that runs out of wine, Jesus won't be there to fill however many jars with the best wine. But you can listen to his voice. You can hear him speak through the words of the ones who were there. And in that sense, we behold, we hear, we respond to his glory. The most commanding real audible voice in all the world is the voice of Almighty God in Jesus Christ louder than the headlines we sang hush shut up (laughs) you know you know the noise you men of strife the din of voices in this world is is overwhelming. But the clearest, most beautiful, most life-transforming, powerful, life-giving voice to listen to is the glorious voice of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. By His Spirit accompanying the words of His Scriptures, He speaks. He speaks today all over the world. And it's a glorious thing when people hear and they listen. And Christ makes a promise to them turn away from your life broken, sinful, messy confused life. Turn away from all that to me, and I promise you'll be one of mine in my glory land, with me at home where you belong. Come to me, all you who labor. Listen to my voice. Don't let others drown out the clarity of my promises, listen. And when people listen and respond, we see the glory of God break out in pockets all over the world as churches are born and families are turned around and enemies become friends and hodgepodge mixtures of human beings like us are united profoundly and deeply and forever around our love for this savior. That is where we see the glory of God until we see it forever in the next world. And so his appeal, John's appeal to us is, did you notice these simple words just in John chapter one? It's a phrase that after everything he's written, you could almost miss. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. From the fullness of his grace, we disciples have just been receiving and receiving and receiving. He's, He's saying to his readers, I'm telling you, from Christ, the Word made flesh, from Christ you will receive blessing upon blessing upon blessing in this broken world. You will receive strength. You will be carried through grief. You will be surrounded by those who care about you because you belong to Him. You will belong in a way that you never knew you could belong. The tradition of gifts and giving is integral to Christmas, isn't it? and all over the united kingdom you'll have mums and dads banging on about no gifts if you're not good and all that kind of nonsense and you'll have people on christmas day saying oh it's all about sharing and then it all ends up in tears i was trying to get someone to share something with their sibling before service and oh it's it's impossible human beings don't want to share but it's the the tradition of gift giving is rooted in the the lavish, overflowing, bounteous generosity of God's grace. And when we have received forgiveness and life and a Savior to love and serve, then spontaneous generous giving is just part of that part of the way that we recognize that God is here, because Christian generosity reflects God's generosity. Did you know that Christian generosity is is different from all other generosity in this world? It's a difference in kind, not degree, because it comes from having received what we know we didn't deserve. And so to give as a Christian, there's no concept of that being too much. How can it be too much? What I've received from God is too much, more than I could ever have deserved or imagined, but I received it, and so I give. So, I think John's appeal to us at the end of his prologue is, as you read on, receive God's blessing that I will now describe to you in the rest of my gospel. Receive it. You're going to read about a religious world that rejects Jesus. See how he says in verse 17, the law was given through Moses and Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here at the beginning of the New Testament, we're moving from God's established primary school, the nation of Israel living under law, to God's new covenant, His international community of forgiven friends. So receive His gift. When you give and receive tomorrow, Ask yourself, simple question, what's the best thing I've ever received? And if the answer isn't new life from God through the forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ, if that's not the best thing that you've ever received, please go back to John and just read again and read again. Amen. Let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, it's hard to see the beauty of your love and grace and forgiveness in this world. There's so much damage, there's so much darkness, there's so much debris, there's so much distraction, there's so much that hides your glory. But we cling to these words of john that he saw what we did not see so lord as you speak to us we're listening and we're responding and we are trusting and we are coming to you with hundreds and hundreds of hundreds and others to adore you and praise your name for jesus sake amen